Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Dark Struggles, Divine Blessings, Jacob at the River Jabbok. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, August the 3rd, 2008. Jacob was a man on the run. Deep-seated family hostilities characterized Jacob's entire life. Because Isaac and Rebekah played favorites, he and his fraternal twin Esau grew up hating each other. Jacob also swindled Esau of his family birthright, which entitled him to a double share of the family blessing. Later, he and Rebekah lied and connived to swindle the family blessing from his blind and dying father. When Esau threatened to murder him, Jacob fled to his uncle Laban in Haran, the very place his grandfather Abraham had departed. Jacob married his cousins, Rachel and Leah, and eventually fathered 13 children with them and their two slaves, Zilpah and Billa. Sick of his father-in-law's manipulations, Jacob fled Laban, only to encounter his long-lost and deeply embittered brother Esau. The consummate dealmaker, Jacob concocted a bribe and sent a caravan of gifts along with his women and children across the river Jabbok. Perhaps that would pacify his brother's murderous threats. Physically exhausted and deeply anxious about Esau, alone in the desert wilderness, shorn of all his considerable worldly possessions, powerless to control his fate, Jacob collapsed into a deep sleep on the banks of the Jabbok River. With Laban behind him and Esau before him, he was too spent to struggle any longer. But only then did his real struggle begin. Fleeing his family history had been bad enough. Wrestling with God himself was a different matter altogether. And so that long, lonesome night, an angelic stranger visited Jacob. They wrestled throughout the night until daybreak, at which point the stranger crippled Jacob with a blow to his hip that disabled him with a limp for the rest of his life. By then, Jacob knew what had happened. We read in Genesis 32, verse 30, I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. In the process, Jacob the deceiver, for such is the meaning of Jacob, received a new name, Israel, which likely means he struggles with God. Most important and unlikely of all, at the conclusion of that riverbank struggle, we read that, quote, God blessed him there, end quote, Genesis 32, 29. In our culture at large, and in our churches too, the myths of superwoman and superman live large. 
The columnist David Brooks of the New York Times describes this as what he calls the Achievatron in his book On Paradise Drive. We celebrate wealth, power, strength, bravado, confidence, prestige, and victory. We begin it with Little League Baseball for our kids and continuing right on through to their SAT scores, college admissions, first job, and first address. And conversely, we abhor and fear weakness, failure, struggle, and doubt. Even though we know that a measure of vulnerability and fear, discouragement, and depression accompany most normal lives, we construe these as signs of failure or even a lack of faith. In real life, naive optimism and the rosy rhetoric about the Achievatron are a recipe for disappointment and discouragement. Sooner or later, reality catches up with most of us. The Jacob story jerks us back to that reality. Frederick Buechner characterizes Jacob's divine encounter at the River Jabbok as the magnificent defeat of the human soul at the hands of God. Similarly, in her book, Scarred by Struggle, Transformed by Hope, the Benedictine nun and writer Joan Chittister uses the Jacob story as a paradigm for a spirituality of struggle. In Jacob's story, Chittister identifies eight elements of our human struggle. Change, isolation, darkness, fear, powerlessness, vulnerability, exhaustion, and scarring. I'm reminded of Paul's own words in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 5, where he describes being harassed at every turn, conflicts without, fears within. But God doesn't leave us there, says Chittister, and in each human struggle, she discovers a corresponding divine gift available to us, conversion, independence, faith, courage, surrender, limitations, endurance, and transformation. Jacob does what all of us must do, writes Chittister, if in the end we too are to become true. He confronts in himself the things that are wounding him, admits his limitations, accepts his situation, rejoins the world, and moves on. The end result of this nighttime struggle for this cheater and liar was God's blessing. Genesis 32, 29. God blessed Jacob there. When you read further in Jacob's story, these twin themes of dark struggles accompanied by divine blessing continued to be intertwined. His daughter Dinah was raped. Two of his sons, Reuben and Judah, committed incest. As if to mimic his own parents who favored him over his twin brother Esau, Jacob played favorites with his own son, Joseph, sowing seeds of fraternal enmity for everyone. And yet, God renewed the covenant with Jacob. Genesis 35, verse 9. 
God appeared to him again and blessed him. Late in life, Jacob reminisced in Genesis 48.3, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and there he blessed me. Contrary to cultural propaganda about what David Brooks calls the Achievatron, the human struggle is never easy, and certainly not the struggle that Jacob had with God himself. But the divine human struggle is never devoid of God's presence and his blessing. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis reminds us that the divine human struggle is neither tidy nor tame, but it's still one we can live with confidence and joy. In that book, Susan and Lucy ask Mr. and Mrs. Beaver to describe Aslan, Lewis's representation of Jesus. They ask if Aslan is a man, and Mr. Beaver replies, Aslan, a man? Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he safe, quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, asked Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Jacob's struggle at the river Jabbok reminds us of this truth, that God is so very good, but he's never safe. We may well struggle with him through the night, but by daybreak, he only intends to bless us. For books this week, I review Fareed Zakaria, The Post-American World, New York, W.W. W. Norton, 2008, 292 pages. For roughly 300 years, two global empires wielded unilateral influence and control over much of the world. First, Great Britain, and now the United States. But the sun did set on the British Empire, and its successor superpower, says Fareed Zakaria, would do well to learn from history. History happened to Britain. And Zakaria wonders, will history happen to America as well? Is it already happening? While Britain failed economically, it succeeded politically. Whereas America faces the opposite challenge, says Zakaria, it will maintain its economic clout, but first must find its place in a changing geopolitical landscape. 
Zuccaria writes not about the decline of America, but rather, as he repeats throughout his book, quote, the rise of the rest, end quote. Globalization has lifted many boats in many places the last 20 years, creating a diffuse and decentralized economic dynamism throughout much of the world. In 2005, for example, 24 of the 25 largest IPOs in the world took place outside of America. Three of the world's biggest economies are non-Western, China, India, and Japan. Taipei boasts the tallest building in the world, but Dubai will soon claim that title. We hear lots about Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, but if you look, 22 of the 25 wealthiest people in the world today are not Americans. Brazil has become energy independent, and the United Arab Emirates can claim the most richly endowed investment fund. Africa might be the lone exception, but not for long if China continues its vigorous investments and agreements in that resource-rich continent. And it now seems clear that a nation can, despite important disruptions and convulsions, become modern without becoming Western. Never mind that many places want to become more like the West. China and India, of course, are the prime examples of newfound economic power. And Zakaria devotes a chapter to each of them. China's economy has grown 9% every year since Deng Xiaoping greenlighted economic capitalism, if not political liberalism. The economy has doubled every eight years in that time. And so today they export more in one single day than they did in all of 1978. They've lifted 400 million people out of poverty. India boasts similar examples, even though it started about 10 years later. Bollywood beats Hollywood in terms of movies made and tickets sold. And America? It's far and away still the lone superpower, and that won't change soon. In economics, technology, science, and even education, it remains the envy of the world. India, Zakaria reminds us, graduates about 50 PhDs a year in computer science. The United States graduates about 1,000. Militarily, the United States spends more than the rest of the world combined. What's crippling America, says Zakaria, is a politics which has become highly dysfunctional in little more than theater. We've become insular and isolated in an economically decentralized world, quote, clueless about the world we're supposed to be running, end quote. Even worse, while we're still the sole superpower, we've lost our legitimacy. And so in his final 25 pages, Zakaria offers six guidelines whereby America can become the world's honest broker of the universal ideals that it espouses. But this requires a new spirit of consultation, cooperation, and even compromise. And the jury is out 
whether we're willing or able to assume such a new role in a new world that because of the rise of the rest is what Zakaria calls already post-American. Fareed Zakaria, the post-American world. For film this week, I review a marvelous film from Mexico called The Violin from the year 2007. Don Plutarco Hidalgo is an aging, illiterate peasant farmer, but he still plays the violin with his one good hand. His son plays the guitar, and his grandson collects the spare change as they play in the restaurants and bars, then sleep on the streets at night. But their real passion is the guerrilla movement of other peasants who are resisting the oppressive government. When the army raids, loots, and torches their little village, that guerrilla movement is stranded in the dense mountain jungles without their cache of weapons. And so Don Plutarco borrows a mule and returns to their village, telling the occupying soldiers that he wants to check his crops. At his age, he's able to convince the soldiers, and the commander takes a shine to Plutarco's violin playing. I won't spoil just where that violin takes this powerful film about oppression and liberation, only to say that as the film itself demonstrates, it's the stuff of multi-generational songs sung at peasant campfires. Filmed in black and white, in Spanish, with English subtitles. The Violin, from Mexico, the year 2007. And finally, another poem in our series of poetry by John Donne, this one called Nativity. Immensity cloistered in thy dear womb, now leaves his well-beloved imprisonment. There he hath made himself to his intent, weak enough now into the world to come. But, oh, for thee, for him, hath the end no room? Yet lay him in this stall, and from the Orient, stars and wise men will travel to prevent the effect of Herod's jealous general doom. Seest thou, my soul, with thy faith's eyes, how he which fills all place, yet none holds him, doth lie? Was not his pity towards thee wondrous high, that would have need to be pitied by thee? Kiss him, and with him into Egypt go, with his kind mother who partakes thy woe. The Nativity by John Donne. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, August 3rd, 2008. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.